0: I'm just going to be quiet. Let's read Psalms 3.8. O oh Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee, incline mine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. I am as a man hath been. Free from the dead, and the slain that lie in the grave, thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard on me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Thou hast put away my acquaintance far from me, thou hast made me an abomination. I am shut up and I cannot come forth. Mine I mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead rise and praise thee? Shall thy loving-kindness be declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer present thee. Lord, why castest thou off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me, thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water, they compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintance into the darkness. That'll give us something to look forward to tonight, won't it? We're going to go to prayer here in just a little bit. Um, I hope that you've been praying all week for these meetings, that our spirit is open, that we are teachable, that the Lord would find pleasure in being with us tonight, that there would be a special moving within individual hearts, whether we see it or not, there would be a moving of the spirit in the hearts, and it would affect our families, our communities, our workplaces, that we would be found in fully worshiping the God that deserves it. Let's kneel in a word of prayer. The Lord God, we. We know that we need and yet we don't even know what all we need or need. all of the infancies of our depravity. And so we call on you tonight, Lord, that you would make clear to us in our innermost beings, and that our spirit would connect with your spirit. There would be a great moving within. That you would be praised. Your people, your saints would be completely moved into fullness of worship and holiness. We ask that you bless Brother Rod. Within his heart, his mind, his tongue, his body language, everything about him, that you would completely take over. Your word would be made alive and we would be. In awe of what our Lord God, our Creator and Keeper and Friend has done. We thank you this night, Lord, that we are in such a favorable, favorable situation. We know that evil is just ruling really everywhere, seems to be growing, and yet your word is stable and true, your promises have not moved, and you are still on the throne. Blessed be your holy name. We just thank you.
1: Okay, turn your Bibles to Psalm 25 and stand up and let's sing this together. Psalm 25. Verse 2 is always the chorus.
0: I told tonight that I needed to introduce a special guest, and so I was going to introduce Bill, but he said I couldn't do that, so I'm not going to do that. We are re- very thankful that uh, Brother Rod and Sister Laurel and their children are here with us. Uh, they're from the Berean congregation. We trust you'll give them your full attention, and that you will be listening in the spirit.
1: Good evening. I usually go right into the text and uh, get into the meat because I realize that I usually go over time and, you know, when you're using the time, you want to use it wisely. As you know, Kidron and many others that have shared up here, even for Sunday school, you want to make use of your time. But I think I would be admiss at just saying, I feel at home here. There's so many faces I've looked forward to this. It it literally felt like it snuck up on us. We were in Oregon just a couple weeks ago. We had VBS this past week at our church, so you know how that goes. You race home from work, and you hop in the car if you shower. If you don't, you do it when you get home, and you go to sleep, and that's your week, and that's certainly how it was. So preparations are still underway this week, and so we continue to ask for prayer as we minister to you. Have you turned in your Bibles to Psalm 130? Psalm 130. I've used this psalm <clears throat> for other revivals, um, and I wasn't certain that I would do it here at Cornerstone. A number of years ago, I had went through this psalm in Grandview. And we had a, uh, a visitor, a sister from Grandview, just a couple weeks ago. And she had mentioned to me how much this psalm meant to her. And how much now it played into giving her hope. And I thought, you know, when I had went here to begin with for revival service you know your your thoughts are what do I bring to a congregation that can stay with them that's lasting that's often the spirit's job but as a as a minister of the gospel I want to bring something that's relatable that maybe five if the Lord Terry's 20 years from now you open the word of God and this week or this something comes back and I know that that a lot of times, and and we'll probably be here too, revivalists will maybe go to a Pauline epistle like Ephesians, or maybe work through a letter or deal with a character study or a topic, and and I'm not downplaying any of that. And a lot of times when we go to the Psalms or the book of Psalms, we do that for for encouragement and, and for our devotional. You know, maybe in the morning, if you're like me, Psalms are very encouraging. And as Brother Phil mentioned Psalm eighty eight is not encouraging. And there was a reason why I had Brother Phil deal with that psalm and we'll get there in a minute. But so I, I, I want you here at, at Cornerstone also to understand that my intention, and the Lord help me and help us together collectively to use this psalm to kind of wait us in this week, kind of give us an outline, as it were, for the next five days, tonight included as to where we're going in, in context and also in thought. And I think that kind of gives you an idea of what to expect. You know, I think that's something that's fun as well. It's enjoyable in a, in a worship service like this to, to know progressively where we're headed. What, what, what is the end goal here? And this psalm in particular is, is really not that long compared to, you know, there's like Psalm 127, it's five verses, Psalm 128, Five verses, I'm just looking at what's in front of me. There's several that are just a few verses. But the, the thing about Psalm 130 is the the way that it's built, the way that it's crafted, and this appeals to me for many reasons. But one of the primary reasons is we're dealing with a position. Positionally where this psalmist is at, it's 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 going somewhere progressively from the depths to the heights. And I think that in a, in a revival service, I think that that's appropriate. And I think that even in dealing with our own lives, I think that it's appropriate to start at the lowest point and build and, and understand the doctrines of God that our sin has separated us from him and how we need Christ not just at the beginning of our faith, but we need him now. We still need the gospel as much as we needed at the beginning. And trusting in his word, the promises of God, they give us hope. And that's where we want to end up. So what I want to do tonight is really an introduction. It's a way of, of getting into this psalm. And probably tomorrow we'll deal with maybe verses 1 and 2. And, and each, each evening we'll either take uh, collectively um, a few of these verses to inspire a message. But tonight I want to introduce you as a church, as a, as a church body to this psalm. If you've not already familiarized yourself with this psalm, if you've not been there, you will have been there after this week. And hopefully after tonight you get a, a sense of your way of around. It's, it's really not that big of a psalm, so I don't see that being a problem. You should have under Psalm 130, uh, either in your your Bible will say a song of degrees or a song of ascents. And it just kind of depends of in terms of a term excuse me, interpretation of, of how that um, your publisher would have placed that there. And this is just kind of a, an aside, but it is integral to understanding the book of Psalms, is there are five books within what comprises our books, our book of Psalms. When we think about opening the book of Psalms, there are five segmented sections, five chapters, of, if you will, or five books. They're, they're broken down. I'm not going to go into that too much. But one of the things that you'll find in under each of these chapters, as we call them, and, and this is no exception, in Psalm 130, there's usually a subheading right below the number. And, and it'll maybe say, Psalm of David's. Uh, for example, on my page I have Psalm 133, a song of degrees of David. And the one that we're looking at tonight is a song of degrees. So this is set within... Uh, companion psalms that are called A Song of Degrees. And and really, contextually, what that means is that these songs were sung and metered in a way that as the pilgrims, or those during the, the time of the feasts, the high days, they would go make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms. So these psalms would be ones that they would have in their minds, they would have in their hearts, and, and kind of into, in not I don't want to downplay it if you have an aversion to praise and worship music, but this is kind to try to get their hearts ready for church, ready to worship. And, and as they're singing these on their road, they're, they're making their way, as, you, as the scriptures say, up to Jerusalem. Even if it wasn't geographically up, it was up because it was a high place. Jerusalem was the pinnacle where the temple was. And so this subheading, a song of degrees or a song of ascents, you know, the thing about this, this was not added by the publisher. This was in the text. So when this psalm and all of these psalms as a collective were found, they were, these subheadings were there. They're not added. This is not an uh, inferring. This is what we actually know this to be the case. And a lot of times it'll say a psalm or a song of David, and we know that those are ascribed to King David. This one we do not know in terms of who wrote this song. There has been... Uh, or Psalm, uh, there's been some debate, there's been some speculation, and that's really not the point necessarily. Because tonight, I want you to personalize this. I want you to personalize it for yourself. Because my intention, and and I pray that the Spirit will meet me as well as you, is bringing this Psalm to life. And and if even if it's not relevant to tonight, it will be relevant. In the future, it will be relevant for you as a as a minister of the gospel as well to take to somebody and give them encouragement and give them a plain path out of the depths, as it were. So let's let's read these eight verses. I'll read them aloud, and then I want to kind of expose it and kind of get into this. And uh, what time do we shut this down tonight? Realistically, 8, eight, eight o'clock
0: eight fifteen. Yeah, we're flexible.
1: Okay. Psalm 130, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice, let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Now if that's the first time that you've heard that psalm, you see what's so attractive about this. You know, Luther, Martin Luther would say of, of this psalm, he calls this a Pauline psalm. Because it's penitent in nature. It has to do with repentance and, and brokenness and understanding where we were, where we came from. As If you think of Romans 1, if you think of Romans 3 and 4, and then the appropriate, and, and, and ultimately there is redemption to be found. But I want us for a minute to just, to just think and just kind of look at the text as it is. These uh, verses are tied together and I, I was going to do slides and I, I really thought, and I actually have pretty good slides for this, but I thought I kind of just want to get into the text. But on my slides, I had isolated each of these verses, these eight verses, and put them in couplets because they're, it, they're tied together by thought and idea, okay? So one and two are together and three and four, and five and six and seven and eight, and they go together in thought, right? And the idea behind that is it's a developing thought. And the, one of the things that stands out to me is when you get to verse 3, verse 3 is a question. Who shall stand? And I think that is, to me, one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves when we get here to that point. Who shall stand before a holy God given a God that marks or could and should mark iniquities. So one of the things that we find in the Psalms or any type of narrative, any, anything that would illustrate a, a thought or try to convey emotion, is trying to understand where is the writer at? What is the context of his position? Right? We do that in, in almost everything that we do. Anytime you pick up a news story, anytime that you're reading a book and, and a character is being developed or a thought is being developed, you're trying to place yourself there. You're trying to, to feel the environment around the individual, trying to craft the scene, as it were, in your mind. And there's no difference here as well. And the thing that I, that I like so much about Psalm 130 is, as short as it is, it's quite explicit. It's remarkable in the fact of so few words they're so concise, but they offer so much glimpse into where this person is. And, and with that, it's brief. The brevity of it is brief. And, and the thing behind that, and the reason that I wanted Brother Phil to read Psalm 88, is because, especially in verses 1 and 2, the brevity of the depths where this, this psalmist starts is so short because it's limited really to two verses or four if you want to bring three and four into that. And the thing that I don't know about tonight is there could be the possibility that there may only be one or two of you that are in the depths. I don't know that. I don't know your heart. But I know a little bit about mankind and I know that if you haven't been in the depths, you will be. And that's the thing about the Christian experience that's the thing about the human experience is we have, we have our high times and we have our low times. We can look around in the world and, and one of the things that I was almost offended by when COVID hit is how despairing the Christian churches were. About how people's character seemed to break. How their fear seemed to becoming an overwhelming mounting lion that would just tear them apart. Their anxiety crept in. But what I realize, and if you were one of those, is not to tear you down tonight, but just to show our need for strength and our need to be built up. And so I know that our faith can waver. I know that our doubts can creep in. And I know that the human heart is prone to wonder. I know that the human heart is prone to fear and sadness and despair. I also know the Christian heart is prone to doubt. I know the Christian heart is prone to sadness, and there's sometimes fear there as well. The thing about it, though, is oftentimes with the Christian, it's directly tied to sin. Of some reason, either sin against you or your sin against God. And I think that contextually, that's where this psalm sits. And we'll show it, hopefully tonight, as we move through here. But the problem that I have as a speaker tonight is some of you, this is midweek, this is middle of your day probably. Some of you might be mowing your grass and if you're not, you probably will when you maybe tomorrow. Or You've got other things in your mind, you've got other things in, in your plans. Maybe some of you are in the process of buying a car or a house, maybe a boat. Maybe you're thinking about going to the lake this weekend and skipping Saturday night. Maybe there's a lot of reasons naturally that you should be excited. Maybe you're newly married. Maybe your 401k didn't tank, right? Maybe you looked in the mirror and said, Wow, I am really good looking. It's never happened to me, but it could happen to you. So, you know, naturally speaking, that could be the case. Spiritually, spiritually, realistically, you could be walking very close to the Lord and be in a very, very high place. You could be coming here rejoicing because I get to worship and praise God for what he's done in my family's life. What he's doing in my life. Creating a zeal within me that I'm overjoyed to share the word of God. But all that may not be true for all of you. There could be some of you that are quite averse to being here. Quite not really wanting to be here. You come in here and you're like, I look at all these people And they seem to have it together, but deep down inside, I'm dying inside. Maybe naturally, maybe you're like me and you look in the mirror and wonder, what happened? Or maybe you look in the Word of God and you see there's a barrier. And the Spirit is telling you there's sin in your life. There's conflict in your marriage. There's conflict at work. There's maybe a lot of reasons that maybe separates you from joy and peace and the spirit and the, the fruits of the spirit. That could be the case, and so as a speaker, I realize that I see that I know that experientially as well as just it's just common knowledge. So I want to sh- I want to get on the same page with you brothers and sisters tonight, and so I had brother Phil read Psalm 88. So I want to step out of Psalm 130 for a minute and go into Psalm 88, and I want to look at this psalm because. Brother Phil is not wrong. By my calculations, this is the most depressing of all places in the Bible to be. It offers very, very little glimpse of light or hope. This is not a psalm that you would send somebody to encourage them. And I know what some of you were thinking. you put it in a greeting card, but probably not a good idea. But it has its place, and it has its place from its relatability. Some of you probably have been here and, and, if, and if you were there in your mind able to draw out what is being said here and, and I want to pick apart one thing before I, <clears throat> before I move out of Psalm, or 180, or Psalm 88 is, is this is said O oh Lord God of my salvation and, and I, I think that's remarkable because what's said after this there's not much hope But yet the psalmist still acknowledges that God is his salvation. That's big. That's a really big deal. That's a a huge milestone to not only accept that, but calling out to God saying that, right? And just like we will find in all of the psalms, but certainly that's explicit in Psalm 130, is it's not as much... Just for us as readers, as it is this psalmist or psalmists that are crying out to God, letting God know that they know. That's important when we give our supplications to God, when we pray to God, that we let God know that we know where we are. And we let God know who he is to us. Our position before him is very important in us. Understanding our position before God is even more important for us if we're going to receive his mercy and his grace and understanding who we're calling to. So by calling, oh, Lord, God of my salvation, that's a big deal. And I don't want us to step over that because to me, as I look for a a glimmer of light, that's it right there. Because he's calling to God that's really the context of why I want to go into Psalm 130. Because if you're on the verge of despairing, if you're so deep in the depths that there's no glimmer of light, no glimmer of hope, and you can have just but that, God of my salvation, that is a whole lot more than you think it is. It's a whole lot more than you think it is. It's your way out. But he says, I have cried day and night before thee. And, and really what I want to do, and I don't mean this to, to, to... Because I don't say this often. I want to create a mood and atmosphere that we go into Psalm 130. And I want to use Psalm 88 to do that. You know, when we come to worship, we shouldn't come expecting a feeling, okay? I understand that. If there's critics that are saying, well, what do you mean by creating a mood? But at the same time, if you're, if you're full of joy and you're full of peace and happiness... It's going to be hard to make this psalm relatable right now. It just is. I recognize that. And my goal is to not bring this congregation down. That is not my goal. But I want us to understand that if you've never been in such a melancholy, desperate mood, there are people that are. And there are people that might be right here. And so that needs to be relatable says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry. And the second verse in Psalm 88 is almost the exact same verbiage that the psalmist uses in 130. He says, incline thine ear unto my cry. Basically, this is a King James version of saying, when I talk to you, please listen to me. Hear the words that I'm saying. Don't close your ears to me. And if we have time permitting, if you go into Lamentations 3, you see that there are times that God shuts his ear. It's a, it's a form of judgment to his people even. And it certainly was then. But he's saying, let my prayer come before thee, incline thine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. And there again, 4, you see that it's not, in verse 4, it's not uncommon for a psalmist to give his position... In this case, he's talking about the pit. It's low. I'm a man that hath no strength. Free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, that they are cut off from thy hand. Now, verse 6, this psalmist says, Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in the darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. It seems as though in Psalm 88 the psalmist is speaking to God for his afflictions. God is afflicting him no doubt because of his sin. He's he's chastening him. The calamities that that have come upon this man have been brought about by God's hand against him. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them, and I am shut up and cannot come forth. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon thee, I have stretched out mine hands unto thee. Will thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead rise and praise thee? All these questions. Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? What unto thee have I cried, O Lord, in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee? You know, I recognize that there have been many men of God that have struggled with depression. They've struggled with doubts. They've struggled with all manner of of sin and, and other things that have prevented them from being on a mountaintop, as you might expect Spurgeon to be, or John Bunyan, or maybe more relevant even today in John Piper's case. But the one thing that I find that is fascinating to me is these are just men speaking to God about their troubles. In one of John Bunyan's works, he writes about himself. He said it were would have been better if he had been a mere dog or a donkey or a mule than to have heard the gospel and to have walked away or has shunned it. There's more going on there. You know, he he had, he struggled with doubt. In a lot of areas. And I know Spurgeon did as well. And sometimes things can look pretty dark. Things can look pretty bleak. Verse 14 Lord, why castest thou off my soul? Why hidest thy face from me? I'm afflicted. I'm ready to die from my youth up while I suffer thy terrors. I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They've came round about me daily like water. See that, that, that feeling showing that, that being consumed by water. They can pass me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me. And mine acquaintance into darkness. We look at that and that is just a very despairing psalm. There's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of emphasis on God's ability to pull out even. He's talking about all the things that it seemed that God has done to him, and is doing and afflicting him, even separating him from his closest friends and any acquaintance that could help. And there again, I don't know the position of the psalmist in Psalm 130 exactly. But let's get into this with Psalm 88 in our mind, in our ears Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. So positionally, we see that this, this psalmist is, he says, out of the depths. And, and I, I find that a fascinating way to start this psalm. Because, you know, if, if I were to be honest, there are many times that I would describe my low points. I don't know that I ever felt like I was drowning. There were times where I felt alone. Maybe some of you have heard, maybe it's Martin Lloyd-Jones that says the dark night of the soul, where you feel like God has has abandoned you for a time. There may be not even any inherent sin in your life, but you feel absent from God or God absent from you. There's backing away from this as you objectively look at it, you feel very alone alone. Even if you're surrounded by friends. Maybe you would put yourself in a desert land. You're dry. Maybe if you were to write a psalm, it would be out in a barren wilderness and there's no one around. But the thing is, contextually, even in an area like that, if you've ever flown over a desert, you can pick out a person in a desert or a cactus or a rock pretty easily. You would stand out. If you were wanting to be found, even in a barren land, you could be found pretty easily in a desert, but not in the deeps. Not in the depths of the ocean, not in the, the flood waters or, or in the swelling tides, not with just your head barely above the waters. In fact, I'm so amazed that Coast Guards can, can even find people after a ship has gone down. A lot of times they don't. That's why they have the beacons on the life jackets and other, other modern... Ways of finding people. But out of the depths, how despairing. Maybe many of you are scared of water, but I think in my mind that has to be one of the most despairing places to be, to be drowning, knowing that there's no one coming to your aid. There's no one there to offer assistance when you feel like you're hanging on by a breath. I want to share just, a, just a, an illustration, and I, I actually thought on this the way coming here, whether I'd shared or not. And one of the things that I had never considered that I read recently concerning the Titanic disaster is when the Titanic, as it was sinking and the lifeboats are scattered around, grossly underfilled, and the, the sea is literally filled with thousands of souls that would die in this cold water, cold Arctic water. There was a Titanic survivor up around the Chicago area, and I think this was maybe relayed in the 90s, and maybe you've heard this, but this Titanic survivor couldn't go to a baseball game, couldn't go to a sporting event. You want to know why? Because the same screams and shouting that he heard at the stadiums said it sounded exactly like that when he was in the lifeboat. Hearing all those souls scream for help. Screaming for mercy. Screaming and hollering with all of their energy they had left to be saved. He said he couldn't do it. He lived near a stadium. He moved. Because it brought back all of that night. And he said and the worst part was when it was deathly quiet. And the last of the screams went out. Brothers and sisters, there will be a time... When people that are crying out to the Lord will no longer cry out and there will be a time when the door will be shut and the Son of God will come back reigning as a king, not as a loving Savior. And so times where your voice can be heard, like Isaiah says, when salvation is near, cry unto the Lord. And that's what I'm asking you tonight as you see this, there is hope. There is hope. If you have breath in your body, there is hope. But it doesn't look very hopeful in this first verse. We have to admit it. It says, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. So he's talking past tense. This isn't the one time that he's done this. And I think just like we see the psalmist in Psalm 88, he's done it maybe day and night for many, many days. And I don't know if, if you're here tonight, and, and, and I, I pray that you're not, but if you are you don't give up and you're crying and you're pleading to God this psalmist says Lord hear my voice let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications there again this psalmist is calling on God asking God to hear his cry hear the words that I'm speaking just for a minute just hear me hear that I'm crying to you that I want you to hear my voice in prayer So many times we try to enrich our prayers either in front of others or maybe in front of our spouse or maybe even in front of God thinking if we embellish them that God will hear us. I think it's quite the contrary and we understand that even from Jesus' parable about the two men that went up to pray and one went down justified. He says, be merciful to me, a sinner. God is not impressed with the elaborate ways that we pray what he's impressed by are people that are accurately able to see themselves and see who they're calling to you think about that even just in the natural sense when jesus is on the earth and he was impressed he would say great is thy faith he actually only says it twice he says it to a centurion and he says it to a woman who stayed there and was willing to be called a dog remember that he said should i should i Give give the the children's bread to dogs. And she stayed through there the whole time. And he was impressed because she knew something about the character of God that he was testing her. And she was waiting expectantly for him to deliver. Verse 3, we find a very, very dynamic question. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And I, I want to just note that this psalm will kind of pivot, kind of hinge, but in these first three and, and first four verses, we find this psalmist is speaking to God. Okay, He's speaking to God and he says, Lord, if you're going to mark iniquities, Lord, who shall stand? This marking means to bear record, to remember. This is not... As, as many would see our God as a sovereign God, but it's there's those that are outside the faith that would see God as a weak God that, don't, that doesn't regard sin as sin. May we lightly esteem God as well. Do we do that? Do we get the, the verity here when he says, If thou, Lord, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? If God Himself would record yet but one sin in your life, that would be a barrier to entrance of the kingdom of God outside of Christ. One of our iniquities would separate us. And if we're honest, we know that there's An abundance. So he acknowledges, if thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? So contextually, as we look in this psalm, we find that this psalmist is acknowledging sin. There's sin in this man's life. There's something that he sees... That if God were to, whip, to hold on to this as, as make a record and make it stand, He could not stand before God by Himself. There's no way that He could approach the throne on His own merits because His sin would prevent Him. Thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And then one of my favorite verses, and really why I was attracted to this psalm, is verse 4. I think it attracts me because, it, especially in the King James, it almost seems like a paradox, but it's not. It says, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And we can't look at four without looking at three, saying, If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? This is the same God that could mark iniquities and and hold our sin to account. And he says, But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared or revered or honored. God takes great delight in saving his people. It honors him. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And I think that of of all of these verses, to me, verse 4 stands above the rest. It's like the pinnacle. It stands out. It broadcasts the gospel. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. You know, that's the challenge. That is the challenge that I have impressed in my own life and as a gospel minister trying to preach the gospel, is I am so ashamed even in my own life, when there's sin in my life, that I'm afraid to go to the God in heaven that sent His Son as if He wouldn't understand. If He wouldn't even entertain me coming before Him, the Almighty God, the God that could and and should mark my iniquities, that there's a barrier to entrance. Not as Hebrew said that I would come before the throne of God boldly. That's not how I see him many times. And maybe that's not how you see him tonight. As you see him is full of wrath and hatred for your sin, and you're right about that. 100% right. He doesn't love your sin. In fact, he hated it so much that he sent Christ his son to pay the penalty for your sin that he hates so that he could bring you to himself and show you his love And as I look at this I'm so amazed that that barrier to entrance is to see God in that light to see Christ in that light he's not surprised when you sin because he sent his son, to die for your sins. That's why he came. That's the most elementary, most basic level entry into the gospel is understanding the reason, the whole reason that we are even here, that we have a cross, that that, that this is why we exalt Jesus. Why do we talk about Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer? It's the whole reason... That He is God with us. That He accomplished anything that is worth praising Him. I mean, you listen to any praise and worship song, no matter the caliber of theology and doctrine, and Christ is right there. Why is He in the middle? Because He's a reigning and a sovereign king. Because his abil- He was able to do something that no man could do, and that is to save us from our sins. And yet, the irony of it is when we're in the middle of sin is we don't come to Him. Folks, that's dumb. It is. It is straight up ignorant. And I'm as guilty as the next man. God is not surprised that you sin. You might be surprised you sin. You might be surprised that you'll sin tomorrow. And I think one of the reasons that sin is surprising is because we don't know what it's going to look like. So we talk about sin in its generic sense. But then when we find ourselves in sin, it's like, well, that's pretty bad. That is not what I expected. I thought of myself a whole lot better than that. And that's the problem. You esteem yourself too high. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. See, this positionally is we're moving from the depths to the heights. In order to get to the heights, you have to get past this barrier to entrance. is understanding, but there is a but. There is a forgiveness with God that He may be honored. That He may be feared. That you understand who this God is that you serve. And then we go into verse 5. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in His word do I hope. I think for me... And I I don't like to admit it, but verse 5 is a challenge for me. Really, truly. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. And I don't want to downplay anything that we've already been in, knowing that we're dealing with heavy things, but I don't like waiting. And if we're honest, most of us don't. Right? We just don't. I don't like waiting on clothes to dry. I don't like waiting in traffic for paint to dry. I don't like waiting at all. I don't like to wait on a YouTube video to load. Right? I don't like to wait to make a phone call till I have better service. I don't even like waiting on my wife. We just don't like to wait, we don't like to wait on a package when COVID-19 hit, people's prime membership kicked it back a couple days. We don't like to wait. What about waiting on the Lord? How does that relate to you? The challenge that I have is twofold here in verse 5. And I'm speaking to myself and I hope that some of you can relate. When I wait on the Lord, this is the problem. If I believe God can do something with full faith... The problem that I have when I'm waiting is I want to know how he's going to accomplish it. That's the problem that I have. One of them. I have many. But that's the problem that I have in this context. Is because when I look at God in his promises to save me or to deliver me or accomplish, even in forgiveness, forgiving my sins and my trespasses and my shortcomings, the thing that I realize, and this is going to be another aside, so bear with me, is I realize that sometimes in the deepest, darkest depths are some of the times that I've been the closest to God. So even in praying for God to show me His grace, show me His mercy, maybe you were back in that position where you were in the desert and you were in the dark night of the soul and you felt very absent from God, and you're praying, God, deliver me from this and bring me closer to You. You know how He accomplishes that? Sometimes He takes you here. He takes you to the depths where you're overwhelmed and your dependency is only on Him. Well, folks, that's not fun. Experientially, that is painful. It might manifest in all sorts of ways. It could be a loved one. It could be a sin. Like either your sin or someone else's sin against you. It could be the true conviction of the Word pricking your spirit and your conscience. And that all hurts. It's all painful. And so when I pray to God in, in in that reality, and I believe that He'll accomplish that. Maybe even show me His grace. And I've prayed that. And brothers and sisters... That is a dangerous prayer to pray. Because I believe this. Because I've experienced it and I see it in God's word. But to to understand God's grace, you have to understand your sin. And that takes some breaking. It takes some pain. And that's hard. And so when I look at this text, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait and in His word do I hope. Yes, but how is he going to accomplish it? That's hard for me. How is he going to take this and and make this? I'm a builder, so I want to know, how do I get from point A to point E? Where's B, C, D? Right? What's happening? What's God going to use as an instrument to break me, to mold me? You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one, but when it says those songs about making me like God, I'm like, that's going to be hard. I and mean, if we're real with ourselves and we're real with the text and we're real with what we know about martyrs that we often laud and, and, and speak about, I don't want that. Not in my flesh. I don't want that. Maybe you're like, who did we pick for a revivalist after tonight? Let's kick him out of here. But I'm serious. There are men that I revere out of the text of Scripture, even in the Old Testament, whether it be David, whether it is, is um, Jacob. And you're like, man, those men of God were powerful, mighty men. Oh, to have a faith like that. And then you start looking at their life. That's rough. Of those two men, goodness, their, their personal life was just horrible. All the bickering, all of the at odds. I mean, in Jacob's life, he lived most of his life thinking that his next to youngest son was murdered. And all the jealousy between his wives and his children. Then he fights with God. He limps the rest of his life. Talk about trying to get things done as an old man and now it's half speed. All of that. And so when I look at this and I think, I will wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope? It's sometimes a yes, I do, but how will he do this? Then there's the other thing, it's just this realization. God's word is truth. Sometimes truth hurts. And so I'm averse to hoping in something because it hurts sometimes. Because I realize there are repercussions for our sins naturally. Even David, who says, blessed is the man in whom the Lord does not impute sin, lost a son for his sin as a judgment. He wasn't cast out from God, but God punished him. And so these are all real things as I look at this in the waiting aspect. It's not just the time about all the natural things I mentioned. That's a huge thing too. Any of you know it when you've dealt with health issues or whatever it is, is that waiting of the unknown is very hard. It takes patience. It takes hope. But he says his hope is in his word. And I want to I step away from myself and my experience. I want to point us all back to the word of God. Because here's the thing. Is we look in ourselves for any hope at all. We're not going to find it. There's so much of that in this world. Of well, just find yourself. Find your true self. Find your true meaning. Find your truth. That will help you. Oh that's. You ever want to swear in church? That's when I want to swear, when somebody says, show me your truth. You know what? I'm not talking about me because I'll show my truth in the Word of God. But when you're telling people to show them their truth, that makes me angry. I, could, I wish that I could speak like Paul does in Galatians. I wish that they were cut off and mangled. Like That, that infuriates me. There's no truth to be found outside of Christ and His Word. There just isn't. In his word do I hope. If we're going to look up, we have to look outside of ourselves. And this, this in this psalmist, the psalmist realizes that. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. And he says, my soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Now, 5 and 6, once again, these verses are tied together. But I want to bring out something in verse 6. And if there is kind of a, that hinge in, in seeing that this psalmist is actually being delivered, I feel like it's probably in verse 6. It's quite possible. And I believe this is my own experience. That you could write this psalm and be very much right in the middle of this depth experience. In the deeps. And God may not actually deliver you out of it. But you're able to have hope. You're able to have peace in the midst of it. And sometimes that is the sweetest thing that a man or woman, a brother or sister in Christ could ever experience. These are the deserts of our life walking with the Spirit. When we're able to have peace in the midst of trial, when we're able to have joy in the midst of sorrow, when we're able to have hope in the midst of sin. When we look at that and we experience it. That's remarkable. That is a work of God. 100%. Verse 6, as I've exposited this verse m- many times, it was always a hard one for me because the psalmist says, my soul waited for the Lord more than they that watched for the morning. I say more than they that watched for the morning. So the relatability of this text at the time that it was written would have had it's, it's roots in a watchman waiting different watches of the night. They would have somebody on the walls or around the city gates that would be watching for marauders or just general people. Maybe they're making a long journey and they need to be let into the gate and not seen as a common criminal. So they were they're appointed, these watchmen, that would watch around the walls of these fortified cities. That was their job. And so when I look at this, he's saying that I, my soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch from the morning. I'm thinking, how does that work? How do you wait more than someone else? I mean, we think about that. We think about, well, that's patience. Like if, if Kidron and I are at Walmart, I hate to do this because I really I don't want to downplay wives. I don't. Like I, I despise that. When, but, but realistically, and, and it's just a, it's a fact. A wife will go into a, a store and typically, I don't know, should I it's probably not say fact. I need to be credible. Probably take longer than most men unless it's a sporting goods store. It's likely, right? And it's not always selfish like we think it is, as, as, at least as I'm fuming. I'm like, well, what the world? She said she'd be 15 minutes and it's 45. She's looking out for others the and kids. And, and I, know, I, I know I'm kind of making light of this, but if we were to put Kidron and I outside the Walmart and we're waiting... And Kidron waits longer than I do. I say, you know what? I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get some ice cream. And and you just stay here and, and, you know, take one for the team. You might say, well, Kidron's waited longer. He's waited more than Rodney has. And that would be accurate. That's not what this text is saying. The watchmen don't get a break. They're not supposed to leave. They're not supposed to slough off like Rodney I think the context of this, and I think this is quite fascinating, and it's beautiful when you get it, and it ties right back into hope. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning, I say, more than they that watch for the morning. He's saying, I have more surety, more clarity, more hope, more assurance that God is is there to deliver me and offer hope than one that's waiting for the sun to come up. I'm more confident than something that that watchman has seen every single night as the sun would rise that I am more confident than that man that God is able to deliver me. I think this what this text says. That's how you wait more. That's how he waits more than the watchman. For the morning and i think that we see in that concept that this this man has solidified his hope solely on god outside of himself and with absolute confidence he knows that god will deliver not even that he can but he will deliver him those are two different things they really are And then he goes on in seven and eight, and I like to see this as a ministry portion of this text, is as you would make this your psalm, as it were, he says, Let Israel, speaking nationally, let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. There again, verse seven would give us the context that this psalm is set within the understanding that he needs mercy, he needs redemption. They're inferring that there's sin, and he's saying, You know where to find it. And he's telling, proclaiming it. And that's what we ought to do. All of us, if we felt it and we have that assurance as one that waits for the morning, if we trust in the Lord and his promises, that we see that there's hope in the Lord, and with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. You think about that word that he uses, plenteous. We know what that means. If, if you tell your family or someone to go get plenty, they're going to bring you more than one or two. They're going to bring plenty, and our Lord brings plenteous redemption. And what does Paul say? Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That's what I see here. Talk about Pauline, and I think Luther's right as he looks at this text. It is Pauline in nature because it, it compasses the gospel story. Probably the most concise narrative, I think, in the Old Testament that you can find certainly in the Psalms. And, and I might interject that I think the Psalms are very doctrinal. They're not just for encouragement. They teach us really foundational truths about God and about ourselves and how we relate to Him. And as we look at this, there's plenteous redemption to be found in God. Do you believe that tonight? Really? Really? That He just didn't deliver you one time. You know, we have objectively a wrong view about God's redemption in the gospel. So much so that, that when we offer the gospel, we may say, well, in our minds, well, the gospel can save you, or it can save Kidron, or can save Brother Joe, or Bob, or whoever it is. And, and, and the gospel is able to save them. But you're thinking, has the gospel saved me? Does it have that power? Is it plenteous? Is there plenteous redemption? Is, is that redeeming power of Christ, excuse me, able to save me to the uttermost? Does it save these other brothers and sisters? Is that possible? In verse 8, And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This last verse doesn't get a lot of attention hasn't got a lot of attention for me. But I have in my Bible all circled. And I don't know if you write in your Bibles or not. I would objectively recommend it, even if they're nice. He shall redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Now, this is speaking about the nation and. Sunday I aim, unless we change course, but I want to deal with the person Jacob known as Israel and see how faithful God was in that man's life. Because when I read this text, that's who I see. He's going to redeem Israel from all his iniquities, all of his sins. And we see Jacob's, we see Israel's own testimony of how faithful God was in his life. And I don't want us to take it for granted because there's been saints in our contemporary time that have said and I've heard it even said before they passed away and they wrote it down. And I was going to bring one of those almost a eulogy of their own life and saying how God had walked with them and looking back, they could see that God was faithful all the way. I would love so much to be able to say that at my end of my life. That he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And and I think. I'm not amiss in saying this. You don't have a super old crowd here. There's a 100% chance that we'll all die. And there will be a time that that will be a test. If it hasn't already. That all of your sins are forgiven. All of your iniquities are forgiven. gone faced with death there is a good chance that even some of the most faithful of you might struggle with that thought I don't mean that to be mean or disparaging but it's true and here's the problem when we see text like this and it doesn't say Rodney it doesn't say Butch As I say, Bonnie or Laurel, sometimes it's hard to say, and he shall redeem Rodney from all his iniquities. There are so many other texts, even despite this one, that we ought to hope in, as the psalmist says. Because what do we have if we don't have God's word and God's promise to wait us and to encourage us even at the very end of our life? And I think, and, and I, I've not done this even, but I think that that's a ministry that's missing in the church. You know, we have youth ministries. Even all of these things that we do, I think to me, I think even in the end of my life, there's going to be doubts arise. Thinking back 20, 30 years and say, God deliver me from all my sins, even that one. This is big, this is practical. I, uh, I often don't know what to do when people say, well, that was a practical message. You know, like I would tell you how to organize your house or how to have a good marriage, all of those things, right? To me, these thoughts about our salvation and how we think about God are so practical. They're often relegated to theology and doctrinal ideas. You can call them what you want. But if we don't think right about ourselves and right about God, it doesn't much matter what else we do. You know, I can, I can tell Kidron how, how we should do marriage. And, and how God maybe even wants us to do marriage. And there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem. If, if I'm lost or if Kidron's lost, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to have all of these steps about how to do our life. Outside of God we're lost. It doesn't matter. If you lived all of your life with a good marriage. You're still going to hell. And so when I get into texts like this. Me as a speaker. Maybe not you. But I look at texts like this as extremely practical. Maybe you're not cut out that way. And maybe I'm the one at fault. But to me this is my day to day. This is how I understand my life and I'm not lifting myself up here because I I do it really badly if you would see in my life you would say that's not who I thought he was and you'd probably be right but the thing of it is is when we open the word of God together this is a litmus test it's not me it's not Kidron it's Christ and he's called us to a higher calling and he's given us more hope than even I can give you. And that's that's really the gospel is giving people hope. And so I encourage you this week, read through Psalm one thirty, be in prayer for me, be in prayer for this cornerstone congregation. Um I might just have Kidron close in prayer if you don't mind.